Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Okay, let's get rolling through Matthew chapter 3. We really flew through the first two chapters of Matthew 1 and 2 through Advent. Uh, We we flew through the first two chapters, and I really just kind of feel like we're standing on the cusp um, of, of something pretty spectacular, jumping really headlong into the main body of, of Matthew. And so we've established something very simple and very important. If you've been with us, if you haven't, I'm gonna recap it just a little bit, but we've established something pretty simple and important. And I hope it's obvious that, that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, um, he has a point in what he's writing. Like he's not just, this, this isn't just a personal diary or, or even like a hopeful musing about how to live a better life, but it's a, it's a powerful account and claim of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and he is the king to the Jewish people. That's what Matthew is writing to communicate, that he is our king. He's the king that has been prophesied about and that we've been waiting for. Here he is. <clears throat> and so Matthew has spent a lot of time building a case for this claim here in the opening chapters. And so, so far we've seen, uh, if, if you've kind of flipped through chapters one and two, who you'll see is you'll see David. And so most people recognize David. David represents royalty. And, G- and Matthew says, Jesus comes from the line of David. And so he is, he is the king. This is his, his, his royal line um, goes back to David. And, and so Jesus really is the promised son of David. And so then we see Abraham, which, which what we believe that to, to represent is, is blessing, that, that God promises through Abraham that Abraham will be a blessing to all peoples of the earth. And, and what Matthew does, he traces Jesus' line back to Abraham saying, Jesus is that blessing through which all of the nations will be blessed. You even have a genealogy. Remember the genealogy we went through of all those names and what in the world could all, why, why in the world would all those names be relevant to us today? Well, put simply, it just represents the covenant faithfulness of God. That if God makes a covenant, if God makes a promise, he's gonna fulfill it. If God promises something, he's gonna do it. And, and not only does that show that he's faithful, it shows that he's sovereign. Um, that God is sovereign over even like the people that you feel like don't belong in that genealogy. Like, what's that person doing here? What's that person doing here? This shows that God is a sovereign God, that even when humans are knuckleheads, that, that God is going to fulfill what he has fulfilled and he's gonna be sovereign over that. So we've got David, we've got Abraham, we've got the genealogy. We've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, a significant person, right? You can say, yeah, and not be Catholic, okay? You can say, yeah. Um, Mary's a significant person. Um, we, we believe that. You've got Joseph, who's the earthly father of Jesus. You've got, you've got an angel. Um, that's pretty significant, right? And then you go to chapter two and you see the wise men. Um, they're these Eastern Gentile astrologists who have shown up to worship the king. Um, and, and so Matthew is establishing early that yes, though Jesus is the king of the Jews, he will be the king of all people. He will be the king of, of, of all of us. Even these Eastern Gentile astrologists thinking that the stars are telling them something funny. They're gonna show up and they're gonna worship the king. But then you've got Herod, who is a sinful, wicked, wretched person. By the way, both of these people 
in, in, in chapter two, we can identify with. We can identify with the outsider and we can identify with, with, this, with this sinful representation of mankind in Herod. We can, re- we can really um, relate with both of them. But despite all these people that we've been introduced to, what we're gonna see here in chapter three is that our key figure indisputably, indisputably and unapologetically is Jesus. So we've seen all these people that teach us these amazing lessons that Matthew, again, has a point in what he's writing. But what we see in chapter three is that the indisputable, unapologetic key figure is Jesus himself. He is the focal point, he is the focus, and he's the point. And so it is the figure that we see in today's text who sets that up maybe more profoundly and authoritatively than anyone else that we'll see in this book. Who's that? That's the guy eating locusts out in the desert, John the Baptist. So we've got John the Baptist, or for those of you who might feel left out denominationally, it's really John the baptizer. Um, And so really, if you're like, well, so he was Baptist? No, The, the name that he was given was because he was the man who showed up baptizing people. And so he wasn't like, there was no First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Um, He was not the leader of the FBC Jerusalem. He was a baptizer of those who he was preaching to. And so John the Baptist, here's the deal. This guy that we meet today, this interesting figure in chapter three, he serves a single purpose in, in in the redemptive plan and history of God. And guess what? He knows what this purpose is. He knows this purpose, and he is confident, at least up front, because we're gonna see a few chapters later, he's in prison, he's gonna be like, hey, Jesus, are you really the guy or not because of kind of his situation? But at least up front, he's pretty confident in his purpose and how to fulfill that purpose. In fact, he sums it up well. Maybe one of my favorite verses in the scriptures is John chapter 330, where John says about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so today, we're simply gonna draw two points from the the text about John the Baptist. First is who he was, kind of his identity. We're gonna do a little bit of like background study on who John the Baptist is. So who he was um, and what he said. Um, So so really looking at his mission and his message, which which there's some heavy stuff, kind of like we we discussed earlier. There's some some heavy stuff as he discusses, as he preaches repentance, as as he preaches a message about wrath, and about justice, he's, he's really a, someone who's coming and, and paving the way for the Lord, but doing so through some things that we've got to address. And so I don't mean to scare you, but as simple as these two points seem, who he was and what he said, there's a lot that's contained within them. Um, not just from like an informational, intellectual preaching standpoint, there is a lot of information that we've got to process, but, but what John says there is, a, there is a personal reality, maybe like a theological standpoint of, of what he says. And so we're gonna, we're gonna discuss today the wrath of God. Like, you're like, oh man, this is a bad day to show up to church. We're gonna discuss the wrath of God. But here's what I'm, here's what I'm gonna try to establish um, that, that even though these are things that we necessarily don't always wanna hear about, um, as we're gonna see today, Wrath and hell and justice are not skeletons in God's closet. And so a lot of, a lot of people in the world, they, they, they have a, a hard time reconciling how a loving God can be a wrathful, just God. 
And, and, and sometimes us as Christians in the church treat these things as if, uh, or the world treats these things as if these are the skeletons in the, in the closet of God. But we're gonna see today that these things are not skeletons in God's closet. And so let me say these two things up front about what John the Baptist says. The message that John brings is heavy and it's all true. But secondly, it's not the full message. It's not the, it's not the full message. He, this is a, this is a, a long book. Um, John the Baptist is going to preach this message about wrath and justice and repentance. But as we will see next week, Jesus also comes with a message. Jesus follows up John the Baptist with a message, a more full and complete message. In fact, John the Baptist himself admits this in verse 11. He says, hey, he essentially says in verse 11, hey, the story's not over yet. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is, is, is mightier than I. He's a mightier man with a mightier message, um, with a mightier mission than even me. And so John the Baptist admits here, there's some heaviness to what I'm proclaiming, but, but, but Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna complete this story. The way that one guy puts it that I, that I heard um, says that John the Baptist um, fills his proper place as a, as a law preacher and Jesus comes as the gospel preacher. Um, and so here's the deal. We're not gonna get into the law and the gospel today. We're gonna definitely get into the gospel today. We're not gonna get into all of the, the complexities of what the law is, but, but let me just say, like, as believers and as people who trust and believe the gospel, the law is necessary. The scriptures tell us that. that, that if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know my sin. So the law serves a purpose. The law is, is, is important and significant in our faith um, in, in placing our trust in who Jesus is. And so let's, <clears throat> let's just dive in um, who John was. Let's read ch- uh, verses one through four. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Does that sound good to you kids? Sound good? Honey and locusts? Anybody have that? Emma brought some seaweed this morning. Emma's not in here, but she brought some seaweed for us to try. It was actually not bad. Um, so it's important to acknowledge that there's, there's quite a few years that separate the end of chapter two, where we kind of left off in Matthew. There's quite a few years that separate the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. So we're not gonna dive into that, but there's, there's likely a little over... Uh, 25 years that separate um, these two chapters. And this chapter marks the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so there's just not a lot that we know about the childhood and the teen years of, of Jesus. But this is the spot here in chapter three where, where it seems like the Old Testament seems to leave off, uh, where, where the Old Testament leaves off in Malachi chapter four. And so at the end of Malachi, God promises um, and announces um, through Malachi that Elijah would one day come again. And so this announcement of Elijah is given before this 400-year period of silence. And then um, John the Baptist, John the baptizer, shows up in the world and starts declaring things that really resemble what 
what Elijah was supposed to declare to the world. And so this leads us to the words of Jesus speaking of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, where it says, for all the law, for, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so the people of God, as we should expect, they're, they're looking for Elijah. God's promised it. They're looking for Elijah. They're like, when is this Elijah gonna come back? They, they would have known who Elijah was. He was a, a, a father of their faith. Like they, they, they all knew who Elijah was. He was one of their great heroes. And Jesus points out, Jesus in Matthew 11 points out that Malachi was not prophesying about a literal appearance of Elijah, but instead a prophet who would greatly resemble Elijah, both in his message and in his appearance. In fact, notice John's appearance where it says, that, <clears throat> where it says in verse four that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. This is very similar to how Elijah is described in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse eight where it says he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And so we're kind of trying to just understand a little bit about who John the Baptist was and why he was so significant. These people were waiting for their prophet Elijah to come back. And, and Jesus in Matthew 11 says, if you're willing to accept it, this is the guy. This is, John the Baptist is the one. And so this connection with Elijah is not all that makes John significant in regards to fulfillment because verse three, where it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse three shows that John the Baptist is, is the one who fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. And so you've got a, another prophetic utterance that John the Baptist is fulfilling. Um, and so this guy is significant, but, but maybe of even greater significance. This is super fascinating. Matthew chapter 11, by the way, um, is, is really one of the reasons why, if you were with us, um, it's not Matthew 11, Matthew 12, but in Matthew 11 and 12, when he's referencing Elijah, and then in 12, when he references Jonah, if you were with us kind of in the fall when we went through Jonah, um, it was really in, in our study of Jonah that, that led us to, 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 to just say, hey, we're gonna walk through the book of Matthew next because there's, a, there's some connection between, Jesus makes a connection between Jonah um, and, and himself and, and, and what he's going to accomplish and what he's going to fulfill. And so there's, there's these discussions, but in Matthew 11, this is what Jesus says. And this is, what, this is what brings some greater significance to who Elijah was. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says about John, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so we also know from Luke's account that John the Baptist is the son of a priest. He's the son of Zechariah. Um, and so all of this to say, all of us to establish really quickly is that John the Baptist is an incredibly significant figure in the biblical story. And so, but... But what John is pointing out in this sermon, in, in, in Matthew chapter three, in this, in this appearance of John the Baptist, what, what he knows and what we know is, is his place and his spot in history. What is his spot and what is his place in history? Not to point to himself, but to point to the one who would, who would be the king. To point to the one that, that all of the glory goes to the Lord. He knows his place. John says, says this. He says, hey, one who is, one's coming after me who's greater than I, I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. 
I'm not even worthy to do that. And so John knew his place. We know John's place. By the way, we know our place, right? Do you know your place in history? Like what your, what your life's purpose is? Like maybe here on the beginning of the year, you're like looking for your, your word for the year. Everybody's like, look at my word, you know, like um, that's great. I love that people do that. I'm not gonna dog that. But we're all looking for purpose. And what John the Baptist reminds us here if, if there's a reminder, he's not doing this explicitly, but what, he, but what we're reminded of here is that your purpose is to bring glory to God. Your purpose in, in life is to point to one who is greater than you, to point to one who is greater and who is more able to satisfy our longings and our hope than even ourselves. And so we've looked at kind of who John the Baptist is. Let's look at what John preached. John's primary message is this. Let's look at John's primary message. This is how he kicks off his, his sermon here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he says in verse two. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the more that I try to wrap my mind around what the kingdom of heaven is, the more complex the idea in general seems. And so Maybe you're like, no, it's, really, it's actually really simple. Well, I would argue with you that there's actually a pretty complex aspect to the kingdom of heaven because on one hand, it does seem like a simple idea. And that's actually the approach that we're gonna take today. We're gonna take the simple approach because we've got a lot of time in Matthew to kind of dive into what the kingdom of heaven would have meant. So on one hand, it's simple. But on the other hand, we, like, I, like we talked about at the beginning of Matthew, we have to try to understand and sympathize with what it would have meant to the Jewish mind in the first century. And so for thousands and thousands of years, the Jews had waited for this day. In fact, at the end of Malachi, um, Malachi talks about the awesome day of the Lord. Like this was a day, this kingdom of heaven, this, this, this outbreaking of, of God's presence and the, and, the, and the reign and the rule of God among his people on earth was a day that they had waited for forever. And what John is saying is it's here. And so like their minds are blown. They've got all sorts of cultural and historical and, and all sorts of things that they're trying to grapple with, with, okay, like, so this is, this is that day that our, our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-great-grandfathers and our great-great-great-grandfathers, they all spoke of, this is that day. And so on one hand, it's simple. We're, and, and that's the side we're gonna take because we're gonna simply define it as the, the rule and the reign of God on the earth. That's it. We're gonna define it as that for our purposes today. We've got a lot of time. The Sermon on the Mount is basically explaining at length what the kingdom of heaven is. And we're gonna get to that and it's gonna be epic, I promise. And so the simple approach to defining what the kingdom of heaven is, is just understanding it as, as the rule and the reign of God here on the earth. And John the Baptist says, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The rule and the reign of God is here through the person of Jesus. And so here's, here's, why, here's one reason why it, it was so complex is because the Jewish people are expecting this kind of day to arrive. They're expecting it. They're longing for it. They're waiting for it. And they're expecting an earthly reign of a Messiah, but in a different kind of way, not in a way of peace, but in a way of war. And John is saying it's here. But he accompanies this with, this, this idea that the Jews had was it's gonna come, we're gonna gird our loins, and we're gonna go to battle. And so what John's saying is, it's here, but he doesn't follow up with, take up your weapons, he follows it up with, repent. 
And so John's kind of flipping the, who the war's against. The Jews are expecting Jesus, or the, the Messiah to come and it to be a, a war on what's happening outside of them. John is saying it's here, the war that is going to be fought is going to be against what is inside of you. The war's gonna be fought not what's beyond you, but what's within you. And so that's, that's what he's trying to say. And so when, when he says the kingdom is here, repent, this should have and should have been and was just as shocking a claim to those who heard it. They, they thought the Messiah was going to take up sides with them, and yet the message that precedes, precedes him and defines the ministry of Jesus is this, is repent, repent. And so in the main portion of this text, we see a couple of different responses to this message. In verse five, if you'll read, it says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And so here in this verse, we see that many from Jerusalem, we see that there are Jews that do respond in obedience. We see that people in Jerusalem. So we see that people in Jerusalem and it says all Judea, they came and they responded positively. They responded in obedience to this call. They confessed their sins and they were baptized by John in a way and in efforts and in a, in a, in a way to identify with this new way of life that they were being called into. And so that's the way that some people responded. Now, Here's, here's kind of how we approach theological points um, most of the time here at Grace Harbor. Sometimes we'll do a whole series on a particular theological, biblical point. And so this past summer, uh, we took four weeks and we just like, we just, we just preached on repentance. Um, and what that series was birthed out of was actually walking line by line to the book of 2 Timothy. Um, and and at the, towards the end of 2 Timothy, Paul makes this comment um, that says, perhaps God may grant them repentance. And so it was like, we took that and we ran with it. And we did this, we did this long, we did this four-week uh, series on, let's talk about as a church what repentance really is. Because repentance seems like a simple term, but again, that's one of those complex things that we took time. <clears throat> and so what we need to do today is we need to look at what John, we're not gonna go into four weeks, by the way. We've already done that. You can go listen to it, it's on our website. Um, what we are gonna do is we are gonna just take a minute and say, hey, John says to repent. Let's look at what repentance means in the context. Let's understand what repentance means for us in the church. And so this is an important lesson that we're learning so far in this chapter is this. So listen in. The gospel elicits a response. What, what John is saying, John is coming and he's, he's opening the door to the gospel to be declared to the world and he's calling for the, the people who are hearing it to respond in obedience. And the, the message for us, the application for us, is that when we hear the gospel, a response is, is really the only option. Now, I'm not, saying, I'm, I'm not saying that you don't have an option of which way you respond. I'm saying to disobey or to obey is to respond. And so the gospel, when it comes upon your life and your mind and your heart, the moment that you hear the gospel and you become aware of the gospel and you become aware that your own sin separates you from a holy God, you are responsible for that. You're responsible for what you have been taught, for what, what the Spirit has shown you through his grace and through illumination. You are responsible to respond in one way or another. Now, again, if the question is not, do you respond? The question is, how have you responded? 
Have you responded in obedience or have you responded in disobedience? And so you, you do one of those two things. There is no neutral position or response to the gospel. There's no such thing. Like you respond in obedience or you respond in disobedience. And so what does an obedient response to a call to repentance look like? Or, or just put another way, more simply, what is repentance? I'm really glad that you asked um, because again, you can go to our website. We did four weeks on it. It's not perfect. It's not great. Uh, it, I won't say it's not great, but I also won't say it is great, but you can go listen to that. We, we, spend, we spend lots of times, but, but let me explain it as best as I can really quickly. For those of you who are believers, let's acknowledge this. For those of you who are believers in the room, one of the ways that I grew up thinking about repentance um, is that repentance was kind of like this one-time thing that like uh, you did at church camp, you know, in the summertime on the fourth night and, and you, you, you know, really emotional. And, and then you did it again the next summer, you got saved again. Um, and then like every emotional experience you had, you just, you prayed. And then when you were scared, you prayed again, you know, just to make sure like, hey God, if, if I'm not saved, just go ahead and do it. You know, I, I need to just get this out. I just need to make sure this is taken care of. Anybody? Some people are like, okay, that, that's good. So some people kind of understand. For those of you who are believers, you may be thinking, I'm a Christian. I've repented. I'm good now. You can look back on that date at camp. You can look back on that date, you know, whenever and say, I've done it. I've checked it off my list. Hey, if you've done that, praise God. If you have placed your trust in God, this is not a place that we're going to cast doubt into your heart or mind on that. Praise God. I've got a date on my calendar of when I trusted in Jesus, I, don't, I, can't, I actually can't remember it. I just know I was 14 years old. Um, and it was in the summertime. And it was actually the week before church camp. So um, it was real because it wasn't at church camp. So um, I know it was genuine. If you've done that, praise God. Man, like, everybody say amen. Amen that the Lord saved you. That the Lord came and showed you your sin. It was by his grace that he did that. But, but let me also say this, and I'm actually stealing from Martin Luther this was like the thrust of the Reformation. This is, this is what launched the Reformation is Martin Luther basically saying, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, he wanted the whole life of believers to be a life of repentance. That's what repentance is. It's not a, a one-time thing. What launched the Reformation was this, was this belief and this conviction from the scriptures that repentance is not a one and done type deal. It is a posture that we take before the Lord with our, with our own sin. And so this is the context in which we are intended to understand repentance. While we may be justified, we are, when you placed your faith in Christ, you are justified on that day. You are, you are justified. You are, you are seen by God through the, through the to, to, for lack of a better word, through the lens of Jesus. When he looks at you, he sees the righteousness that has been imputed upon your life. So we may be justified, but hey, I don't, I don't have to ask, I don't have to get any agreement from you because I, I know that this is the case for us. We're still prone to sin. Man, I'm justified, but I am, I am still prone to sin. And we are called to continually bow before the Lord in an acknowledgement of our sinfulness. And so what is Repentance, repentance is more than just being sorry for something. Repentance is, is, is more than being sorrowful. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19, we see a man encounter Jesus and Jesus calls him to repent. He walks away sorrowful, but guess what? He doesn't walk away, repentant. 
He walks away sorrowful, but he doesn't walk away repentant. What repentance does require over and over again in the scriptures is a deep awareness and sense of our own sin, but not only our sins, our sinful nature. Remember Psalm 51? David says like, hey, I'm not, basically it says like, I'm not only guilty of this one sin, I was brought forth in it. I was brought forth in iniquity. Charles Spurgeon says, like, it's not only in, I, I can't remember how he says it, it's not only in the fountain, but it's in the very streams of us. It's not only like what comes out of us, it's what's within us. And so repentance is not only an acknowledgement of, of our sin, even though repentance should be specific, it should also be in general that we are just sinful by nature. That we are sinful people in our very nature. David says, I was brought forth in iniquity. And we can only be free from our sin when we face our sin. You can only be free from your sin when you face it head on. That's why it's not just being sorry. Like, I'm sorry I did this. It's when you, when you face and you come in reality that your sin puts you at odds with God. In fact, we, one way that we defined it in our series last summer, we took a Puritan and we took a reformer and we took a prophet and we defined repentance. And so Jeremiah defines it in Jeremiah chapter four. Uh, we took... Um, we took uh, Thomas Watson, the great Puritan's definition of it. Uh, but I, I like John Calvin's, who's really simple. His definition is simply as a turning of the life towards God. It is both a, a mortification, which means a death to our sin, but a vivification as well, a living for something better. And so Paul's gonna say that over and over again. He's not just gonna say, put off these things. What else is he gonna say? He's gonna say, put these things on. So he's gonna say, put something away, but also put something on. And so this is the message that John begins to preach, repent. And this is applicable to us, to you, to me. And this is what Jesus will build upon. I love, I love what Proverbs 28 13, 28, 13 says. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Our, our series on repentance last summer was called Repentance and Hope. Repentance and Hope. Because repentance is, is a part of our following Jesus, but the promise of repentance always is that if you confess, you will receive mercy. If you confess, you will be shown mercy. And so you know John could, could be a good Baptist because uh, he's got a two-point sermon here. Um, the first point is what we just discussed is repent. Point number two of John's sermon is wrath. Sounds like a peppy sermon, huh? Point number one, repent. Point number two, wrath. See you next week. So let's talk about what John's gonna talk about on wrath. So John is preaching this message of repentance and two groups of people approach, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse seven. So we're gonna learn a lot about these two groups through Matthew, but what we should know from the outset is that these were two groups of Jewish, Jewish religious leaders who pretty much had nothing in common except for their hatred of Jesus. Like they didn't like each other, but when it came to the Messiah, they were, they were on the same team. Another thing that they did share in common is that they were highly dignified um, and they were important figures in the religious community. But look at how John responds when they show up in verses seven through 12. He says, but when he saw them coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you, of the, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit 
in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I don't know about you, but this, is not, this is, isn't quite the way that you would expect someone to respond to people of dignity, right? John is not impressed. These people show up, which, which by the way, if, if, if your translation of scripture kind of confuses you, like, weren't these people coming to be baptized? No, the, 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 the literal language makes very clear these people were not coming to be baptized. They were just coming to see what was going on. They were coming to see what was going on. So they were not coming to be baptized. And so John sees them coming and he does not respond the way that you would expect someone to respond to dignity. To, to dignitaries, John is not impressed and he's quick and he's direct and letting these men know that it, is, that it is precisely them. Lean into this for a second. He's quick and direct in letting these men know that it is precisely them and their religiosity that is what stands in the opposition to this Messiah. Now, we're gonna unpack that a little bit here in just a second. But, but what, as we've already said, what these leaders thought is that the Messiah would arrive and they would take care of the unjust and the corrupt systems that existed beyond them. But what John is establishing here is that they are the unjust and the corrupt system that Jesus is coming to tear down. That they are who Jesus is coming to stand in opposition to and he's going to address what exists within them. And what is it that exists within them? Not some social message or anything like that, but their sin. That's what exists within their, in the streams of their system is their sin. Shockingly, the great opponent of God, the, the, the great opponent that God is moving in on is our sin. That's what he's coming to address. That though there is certainly a redemptive, we're gonna get to this later, not today, but in several weeks, that there certainly is a redemptive earthly and spatial aspect to the rule and the reign of God, our greatest need of deliverance isn't from what we've already said, isn't from what exists outside, but what exists within, right? And that's what John is telling these people. We, we can't misunderstand, again, their understanding of the place with God that they had because of being Jewish people. That was very significant, and it is. And, and, and we're, we'll, we'll say that like, that's where we can kind of give them a little bit of like leeway and, and just saying like, hey, this is a very important piece of their faith that, that they had a, a special place with God because of the covenant that he had set up with him. They had lots of reasons to feel that the way that they did, but John sets them straight and insults them big time when he calls them a brood of vipers. The, the literal translation of this is, is offspring of snakes. Like John was doing this to insult them being offspring of Abraham. They would have expected to hear you offspring of Abraham. And what John is saying is like, your father's not Abraham, your father's a snake. He's, 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 he's trying to, to really get them and, and offend them in this way. And so simply put, what these people would have expected 
was that their Jewish heritage and their pedigree was all that was needed to make them right with God. That they were right with God just because of, of who they were nationally. John is emphasizing here what Paul later says in Galatians 3, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is the sons of faith who are him. He tells them that if they desire to be repentant, that they not depend on religious ceremony or religious status, but that they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Hey, in keeping with repentance doesn't matter your works or who you are or who you know or your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith. The fruit of your repentance is obedience, is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And so we, we really close in on by focusing on this emphasis on wrath in John's sermon, which really comes in the, in the, in the last two verses. This isn't typically how we spend the majority of time in the closing of our, of our teaching, but it just so happens to be what I believe is that kind of the driving message in John's sermon. Again, knowing that the story doesn't end here. There's, there's definitely, and I think you would agree with this, and you may sympathize with this, there's, there's definitely a shying away from the, the truth of God's wrath in much of our lives and teaching today. Would you say that? Would you, would you say like, you, you know, the, the, the people who teach like hellfire and brimstone sermons, like they're the, they're the weirdo fundamentalist people, right? Um, and, and there's no place for that in gospel believing places. It's kind of the idea. So there's kind of this, there's, that's not what I'm saying, that, that that's the case. I'm saying that in our culture um, and in our response to faith and the culture's response to faith, there's a shying away from God's wrath. Like we just don't wanna touch it. We don't wanna, we don't wanna talk about it. We talk about God's mercy. And hey, shameless plug, there's 100 copies of the book Gentle and Lowly out on the bookshelf, um, and I cannot recommend that to you more highly. I, I love the gentleness and the lowliness and the mercy and the grace of God. But we must acknowledge put most simply, that God is a just God. That God is a just God. And, and John's reminding us of this, that God is wrathful towards our sin and he is just towards sinners. That he is wrathful towards sin and he is just towards sinners. And so as much as we've established through these first two chapters that, that Jesus is our, is our long-awaited hope and he is our long-awaited Messiah, that the coming, of, the coming of God and the kingdom of heaven throughout all of the scriptures is not only the coming of a, of a, of a hope filler and hope dealer, but, but the, the day of the Lord in the scriptures is, is really never separated from the truth that it's also the coming of justice and judgment, that, that he's bringing salvation, but he's bringing judgment to those who do evil. And you can't separate the kingdom of heaven and the day of the Lord from the, from the justice of God towards sin and the wrath of God towards sin. That's what he's working towards. He's working towards getting rid of, of all of it. In fact, a coming of the kingdom without judgment for evil and even evildoers only exists in our imaginations and in our preferences and not in the scriptures. It doesn't exist. If we can just be clear today, it doesn't, again, we don't preach this message every week. And so it's a little bit heavy, 
But, but that, that version of God only exists in our imagination and preference. In fact, it's one way that we have managed to create a God in our own image. We've, you know that we do that, right? You hear all the time that we're creating the image of God. You do know that we create God in our own image too. Not faithfully, most of the time. And so it's one way that we've acknowledged to, to or managed to create a God in our own image, but we must acknowledge and submit to something that seems impossible to wrap our minds around, that the justice and the wrath of God is actually merciful. Rachel is not staying for this message. She has had enough. So I'm just kidding. Had to let the air out of the room a little bit, okay? The justice and the wrath of God is a merciful thing. Let me, let me, let me say it this way. What could I mean by that? Let me ask you this. Who of us in here wants sin and injustice to go unpunished? Who desires a wrathless God towards injustice? Let me just, let me, let me answer that question for you. No one, nobody. Even, even people who, who don't believe in God, even people who have no faith, maybe agnostics and atheists, they, this is in no way to, dis, to, to disparage those who are outside of the faith. But this question of how could a loving God be wrathful, the, the answer, one of the answers to that, that's a very complex question, by the way. But one of the answers to that question is, who of us wants justice to go unnoticed or unpunished? Nobody. We just would rather have it on our own terms and in ways that really don't affect us or, or don't affect those that, that we love. But, but, but family, here's how we here at Grace Harbor have attempted to understand and communicate the wrath and the justice of God. For those who never repent and turn their lives to God, their sin against a holy God is deserving of the wrath of God. Our sin is deserving of God's wrath. And so for those who are not of the faith, their day of wrath is a, is a day that exists in the future. However, for those who do repent, they, they don't personally experience God's wrath, but we must not believe that their sin goes unpunished. For them, their day of wrath doesn't exist in the future. Their day of wrath exists in the past. And it's been completely satisfied and fully paid. If you're a child of God, just put simply, if you're a child of God, your day of judgment has moved from the future to the past. So none of us in here want to experience the wrath of God. But Jesus, the one who John the Baptist is paving the way for, is saying that one is coming. One is coming who is mightier than I. And ultimately what he's going to do is he's going to pay the penalty for, for sin that deserves the wrath of God. And the, the message is, if you're, if you're hearing this message and, and it feels heavy to you, first of all, that's okay. It's okay if this feels a little bit heavy to you. But if you're, if you're one that, that can't reconcile this, the, the, the truth of this, the gospel in this is the fact that you don't have to experience the wrath of God. You have someone who's done that for you. I love, the, I love what one theologian says that the wrath of God is not the irritability of God. The wrath of God is the love of God in friction with injustice, with friction, uh, in friction with sin. It's not about, God's wrath is not God's irritability, it's God's love. God's wrath doesn't contradict the love of God, it proves the love of God. 
It proves it. God's wrath proves God's love. A love that enables sin is not love. And so church family, we acknowledge that as we come to the table this morning, as we do every week. That's what we're experiencing, that we have freedom from the wrath of God because of what Christ has done for us. We have freedom from the wrath of God because because Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. On the cross, God experienced the wrath of God towards our sin. And that's what we experience here in this table. And so I just want us to to, to end on that note. I want us to end on on that hope-filled note that the the mercy of God has been extended to us and that you can receive that. And for those of you who are Christians, we invite you to the table. For those of you who are not Christians, we just invite you and implore you and encourage you the way that the Bible does. That if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if you feel excluded, the message of the gospel is that you can be included. It's not excluded forever. It's that until you place your faith in Christ, you've not experienced this this wrath-absorbing Savior that Jesus is to us. And so if you are not a believer, the day of wrath is coming. If you are a believer, praise God, your day of wrath has moved to the past. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and the truth of the gospel. Thank you that you give us mercy and grace to, to believe that. Um, we know that, we know that um, without a, an intervention by your spirit, without a, a work of your spirit within our hearts, um, that, that we, are, we remain dead in our trespasses and our sins. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the grace that, that you've given us and even being able to face our sin. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in being able to turn from our sin. We, we thank you for the grace that you've given us to forgive us of our sin um, and, and the, the grace that you've given us by the Spirit to keep us and secure us um, and to walk with you day after day. May we be a people who would repent of our sin. Lord, help me um, to repent when when I'm, when I'm not following you, when I'm not with you. And so, Lord, this morning, even as we come to the table with empty hands, we come empty-handed. We come um, in a way that acknowledges that, that I don't bring anything to the table except for my sin that makes your grace necessary. And yet, when I walk away from the table, um, I know that I'm, I'm welcome, I know that I'm accepted, and I, more importantly, I've, I've been given righteousness that is not righteousness of my own, but righteousness of a, of a, of a perfect, humble, merciful Savior. We, we praise you, Lord, and, and may we now worship you in response to this truth. Thank you for your word and your name. Amen.